0: What's the time? It's time to get L! L. What's the time? It's time to get L! what's the time? It's time to get L! what's the time? It's time to get L. 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 L! Hello everybody and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a Senior Policy Analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And we're in episode, I don't know, somewhere in the 80 or 90 range of the podcast now, so we're not a very uh, new podcast anymore. But for those of you out there just listening, uh, just tuning in for the first time, basically uh, what we do here in the podcast is I introduce, or excuse me, uh, I uh, invite an author on to discuss a, a book of theirs that's been uh, recently published or newly published, uh, something, you know, a book on a topic we think you guys out here out there would like to hear a discussion about. And then uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast, or you know even in the middle of the podcast, if your draw about you, you go ahead and uh, pick up a copy of the book yourself and give it a read. So yeah, if you like this podcast, please consider giving illiteracy a five star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Doctor Christopher M. Rialli, and Doctor Rialli is a cultural musicologist who studies popular music by examining the relationships between local music scenes and the national music industry, and does so as assistant professor of music at Ramapo College in beautiful North Jersey, up there in uh, Bergen County. Uh, His work has appeared in Southern Cultures, uh, the New Grove Dictionary of American Music, the New Encyclopedia of Southern Culture, uh, the Journal of the Music and Entertainment Industries Educators Association, and the Journal for the Society of American Music. And he is also the author of Music and Mystique in Muscle Shoals, which was published back in July by the University of Illinois Press and is the uh, book we will be discussing today. So, Dr. Rialli, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. I'm very honored um, to be here. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about my work. No problem. So. Uh, so what made you want to write this book? What was the genesis of it? And uh, or actually before that, really, um uh, how did you, uh, <laughs> as the kids no longer say, how did you, uh, how did you get hip to, uh, Muscle Shoals and the, and this, and the music scene down there in, uh, Northwestern Alabama?
1: Um, I just, well, I, actually, I appreciate that second part of the question because yeah. I, I guess I, I, I've been playing the music. That, that some of the music that's been coming out of there for pretty much my entire life. So I'm a, I'm a musician, I'm a guitar player, singer, songwriter as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, going back to bands in high school, we played songs that were recorded in the Shoals. And, like, in the introduction of the book, I, you know, I was sincere when I said I first learned about Muscle Shoals, like many people did when they heard Leonard Skinner sing Muscle Shoals got the Swampers um in Sweden, Alabama. And so that was one of the songs we played although that was not that song wasn't recorded in, in actually in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um but uh so and then I was like, oh I put and playing in various bands and then later on when I when I realized that this that this scene was there, I was like, oh yeah, that song was recorded there and that song was recorded there and oh that song and that song. Um I, I played in an R and and soul band um, you know, when I was living in Long Island uh years ago and like probably half our repertoire was stuff recorded, you know, between muscle shoals and stacks Sure. Honest. yeah um and, and and then of course he yeah, had Motown there too um so that was so I mean that so I guess I had a cultural awareness of of the scene long before I was you know a music historian although mm. a big part of my teaching um happened before I went to, went to graduate school was, like, was just by reading these things called minor notes which I know <laughs> I, I I lament to my students that's one of the things that you don't get when you're listening to music on streaming like you don't get yeah. all the notes and all the you know and, and so I, I was aware of these of the players the producers you know, even some of the studios just by reading Larry notes. But the project started when I um, went to UNC Chapel Hill to, to do my PhD. And um, the, the first seminar I was in, um, we were tasked with doing a, uh, a, a term paper um, based on archival sources. And the professor wanted us to use stuff in the Southern Folk Life Collection, which is this massive archive at Ch- in Chapel Hill of all things Southern. So it's music, it's film, it's poetry, it's, you know, folkways, it's uh, recipes, I mean, anything. And there's some pretty big collections there. And so I looked into Jerry Wexler's, uh, Jerry Wexler donated a, a very small collection of papers, you know, like about just basically one box of stuff. And in it was a draft for an article um, that he wrote, in, and wrote and published in 1969 called What It Is, is swamp music is what it is. So he was that's actually was very very um like he was very clever that way. And he was mm. he was a former journalism student. And so I I read this, read this article, read this draft. It was basically a script on a Atlantic record stationery And then I, it was published in the 70th, 75th anniversary of Billboard, um in like it was December of sixty nine. And so in it he talks about all these all these um artists and uh scenes and muscle shoals in that and so I wrote a paper about this basically this article um, and I was like, oh, wow, I, I think I discovered my dissertation because doing some research, there's no book, literally no book that's written about Muscle Shoals specifically. There are chapters in some books. Peter Guam has got, a, got, a, got a, um, a chapter in his Sweet Soul Music, mm-hmm. um, and other, other authors have chapters about the Shoals scene. But those books are all, most of those books are at least 25 or 30 years old, and so there was no one book devoted to the history of the Shoals. And most people only write about the classic R&B era and yeah, that yeah. which is what Colin did and Bruce Hoskins and others. Um, and so, and that's kind of what I did too for the, for my dissertation. And then when I got to the book project, I, it, it got expanded to include the country music scene, which almost nobody talks about ever. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that, that was a long answer for how I got into it.
0: Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah. Uh, I'm sort of, uh, I guess probably for most people, um, unless you were part of that scene, you really didn't, uh, uh, you weren't really aware of just how much um, stuff was coming in there. But, um, you know, I grew up in, you know, down the Jersey shore in Monmouth County in, uh, okay in Bradley beach. And uh, so, you know, in Springsteen territory, pretty much, you know, and, uh, yeah. and Southside Johnny and all that stuff. So, um, oh, yeah. so, you know, so, I mean, my, my house is, uh, I grew up in, you know, you walk up the boardwalk a mile and you're at the stone pony Or, you know, if you literally, if you hop the fence, uh, you know, from my, uh, in my backyard and you walk down two blocks, it's it's the the house or the guest house where, you know, Springsteen wrote, you know, 4th of July, Asbury Park and all sorts of stuff. So like my, my grade school in Belmar, uh, is, uh, literally on the corner of E street in Belmar. (laughs) So, I mean, but, uh, (laughs) so I mean like heavily, heavily, like, you know, Springsteen, like ground zero, right um sure so but like all the um you know and there's just all those uh bars and clubs and stuff on the beach and uh especially in asbury park in that area and uh you know and again you talked about you know bar bands and you know you know playing stuff from the r&b stuff you know the stack stuff the atlantic stuff uh you know yeah, Motown, sure. all that uh you know there's really i mean i don't know you know what the hell's the point of even being in a bar band if you're not playing that kind of stuff, but. um uh so you know especially in Jersey. Yeah, yeah. So like that stuff was always uh sort of in the air and then um I remember specifically like the first uh I mean I obviously I didn't know it was a song uh you know recorded in Muscle Shoals but uh you know that song uh I'm your puppet by James and Bobby Purify uh oh, which yeah, sure. I heard yeah which I heard uh I don't know if you remember the show it was on CBS that uh Vietnam show Tour of Duty uh in the late 80s yeah yeah yeah. so they used to um i you know i first heard that i first heard when a man loves a woman on that show um they played a you know a couple uh you know i I just remember from a kid uh hearing those songs on that show and you know sort of fell in love with that stuff and then the older i got you know the more and more uh i got into uh you know r&b and soul music and that sort of stuff and yet again it's just sort of the same thing just tracking the liner notes and be like okay well um all right this song was recorded Souls. like oh these guys played on it I'm like oh these guys played on this too and then like that sort of thing and then it sort of right. like gradually uh dawns on you i mean it was a little different with like stacks because like obviously you know it's booker t and the mgs on you know practically everything before 1968 and stacks you know uh yeah but a little different but so you know that's how i uh fell in love with it and then um uh but yeah but i think again for like a lot of people too the uh documentary that came out in 2013, 2013 2014 the muscle shoals uh right uh documentary the worst titled movie ever what's that i said the worst titled movie ever <laughs> yeah so. yeah 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 um uh, so yeah, it, it kind of finally brought that all together, like, you know, sort of crystallized exactly what, um, or, you know, the, obviously the, the film takes a few liberties, but, uh, you know, exactly sort of what happened, uh, down there in that, uh, in that mid to late sixties, early seventies period. Um, and, uh, I'm sorry, I'm rambling now about this stuff, but I mean, I'm sort of like the same way you did, uh, you know, it's not like, Again, like not like Motown, where like you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like everything you know, uh, Motown has that sound. Uh, you know, it's it's all on the, with the same record label. Uh, you know what I mean, that sort but, of thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean that's one of the you know I, one of the things I point out in the book, and, and like Motown was a self-contained unit. Like they mm-hmm. were the studio musicians, they were the songwriters, they yep. were Gordy owns the thing, and they were the label too. And you know, one of the things that made Muscle Shoals very different. Is and, and, and you know I, I I I speak about this in the book is like although Rick Hall had a label right he had the Fame label mm-hmm. they were more they were they were more or less you know all the the you know, the, the two main studios um, you know Fame and Muscle Soul Sound they were freelance studios yeah. and, and although well, although MFS you know did a lot of contract work with Atlantic because Atlantic lent them the money to open the studio. Sure. Anybody with the money could open the studio – sorry, anybody with the money could, could rent the studio. And so, so the, the discography of music that comes out of Muscle Shoals is scattered across hundreds of labels mm-hmm. where Motown is like – it's the Motown label or, or, one, or one of their subsidiaries, which yeah, is yeah. very clearly says Motown somewhere, on a Tamil, Motown, whatever. you know, um, yeah, VIP And so, soul, it's, so it's, you know, e- it's very easy for the public to be like, oh, wow, I had no idea that that song was recorded there because – in the show that is because, oh, because it, it you know, whatever, whatever label it was. So, and, and so it's, it's really, it's, and it makes it hard for also a historian to track down, like, you know, I would never, I, I once thought about like, oh, maybe I'll try to make a discography. I was like, yeah, when I, I was like, it's impossible because there's, yeah. there's too many things and the records are too scattered.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. And it's become something of a, of a, a branding thing now uh, where like, if it's not, if it's, uh, you know, people record, uh, either in fame or at uh, Muscle Shoals Sound, and uh, if they don't mention <laughs> the name Muscle Shoals somewhere in the title of the record, uh, it's you know it's they they heavily promote it like uh, you know they want to make sure that you know um, that that album was recorded in the shoals and. Um, it works at least for me, you know what I mean like oh yeah if 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 I find out something was like recorded down there, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna listen to this, like that's just you know uh that's just how yeah, you know
1: and you know even though you know that you know the majority of the of the swampers are dead, yeah um and you know you know uh the business section is has into the wind at this point, and yeah, you know I mean, I you know that's when I was doing the chapter on the marketing, I was like, let me look at the titles you know, and i I searched discogs deep you know and looked and you know and it was, you know, like, and there's and there's a lot of, lot of records I didn't even bother talking about because because they're you know, listening it'd be like, you know, if I recorded, and a lot of people will go to you know, anybody can rent Fame and they can go down there and record and they'll say, oh, Chris mm-hmm. Reality recorded his Fame, like no one knows who I am, but but I would be clearly capitalizing on on the recent celebrity of the region, yeah. um, which is definitely what happened, you know, like the the Reed Watson quote in the book, I loved it. He was like, it's like a BC, the movie was like a BCAD thing. It was like. Oh, yeah. And people realized, oh, we could brand with this. And mm-hmm. like, and it, it's amazing that, you know, that no one really thought about that. I mean, the people in the industry and in the local industry thought about that. But the, the, the rest of the people in the area the government, you know, the local local government and other, other you know, whatever affiliates, they could care less about the recording industry. Yeah. Um, and they could spend and, and I'm sure Rodney Hall probably argued they still could care less about the industry down there even though they've generated probably at this point billions of dollars that flow through there because of because of those because of, of the eight studios at one time
0: yeah and you know I don't know how many um, I mean it's definitely a way for uh, musicians and artists to sort of uh, I don't know appropriate's not the right word but sort of latch on to the idea of, of, of the record or of them being uh, authentic or uh you know a part of a tradition or something like that and I'm uh, but I'm not really sure how many other working studios around the world um can still I mean uh, uh, are still sort oh, of yeah. destinations sure. like that maybe like Abbey Road or like uh Electric Lady Studios in New York um but like actual yeah, working no, studios no. that you know that, that capitalize on on the they have that the, the cachet yeah, yeah. You know, I,
1: I mean I, 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 talk, I, I talk I teach a class called I call pop music studies and we talk about recording studios and scenes and stuff like that and and I show uh, the footage of U two playing at Sun Studio where they they mm-hmm. an Angel from Harlem and it's, they, they shoot it in black and white yeah. and, and it's like because they, they want to be they want to be close to Elvis yep. and so they go back there and you know, I, I don't actually know if you can actually still record at Sun so obviously for U two you can do that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, and even, even, you know, even Dave Gold's you know, documentary Sound City, like mm-hmm. right, talking about that, that one iconic studio that is no more. So, you know, musicians are very, um, uh, superstitious in some ways. And, you know, and so one of the attractions that made one of the things that made Muscle Shoals, um, more attracted in, in, in their heyday in the sixties in, in and up to the eighties was, was like, oh, because the studio seemed to be cranking on hits. So like, let's go there. Maybe it's, maybe it's the studio. And so now it's musicians going back and wanting a piece of like i mean you know i, I you know I, when you walk in that room, when you walk in studio a mm-hmm. in you know in fame, like oh yeah that's that's the Wurlitzer that spooner played yeah, the opening yeah. to, I oh yeah, the man there. like that's that's right there, like that's it that's and that, you know and they I know that they just they, they i know um they recently purchased the, the piano that Aretha played on that session they it was you know they got it back,
2: mm-hmm. and you know, and
1: muscle soul sound has been refurbished, and they, a lot of the gear is similar to what they had when I mean, the room was cool um but that's like, and you're like, oh wow, there's a lot of history in this room, and I, you know. And you and you look for that kind of inspiration where you can. Um, and yes, and you're right, there are very few, um, there are very few studios like that that are still standing. Yeah. Um You know, Road certainly. You know, you know, you know, maybe maybe the capital capital studios out in California, mm-hmm. out in LA. But yeah, not that many left. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was up in the area like right before Christmas time in. Uh... 2019 I had to go to a conference in uh, New Orleans and I just drove up uh, from down here in Florida where I live now and uh, and after the conference uh, you know uh, basically drove up to uh, drove up to Memphis then over to Muscle Shoals and uh, when I got there um, the uh, Almond Betts band was recording their new album or I guess it's been released by now it was you know three years ago uh, but they were recording their album in Muscle Shoals sound studio and uh i I was uh, I was uh there was one of the couple that came in the door like right before the guy was going to give me like the tour and i was like oh this is going to be sweet this is going to be me and it's basically like i'm getting like a private tour of this place and like I remember like before they got there before like we went into the studio he was like yeah they're recording the album there and he's like uh so he was like so you know if um don't be alarmed if it smells like weed when we get in the studio (laughs) and I was like oh yeah that's fine no problem and like you know they had all the gear I mean it was so it was hard to walk around because like all the gear you know was still set up you know the drums were in there and uh you know all the guitars and whatnot and uh he was like oh uh, you know like that bass that was Barry Oakley's bass that's the one you know that he played like you know uh whipping post and stuff on and he was like but oh don't, cool he was right. like don't touch any of the instruments though and i was like yeah like get the fuck out of here like i'm not going to touch that bass of course i'm going to touch that bass you know like barry oakley play <laughs> whipping posts on that bass <laughs> i'm touching that bass and uh you know uh that sort of thing so yeah it's it's uh, it, like i said they they're they're museums in a way you know but they're still working oh, no, studios um, yeah, I mean- yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, sound is very much, sound is very much, uh, you know, a museum and, um, you know, fame is the fame only started doing more public tours pretty recently, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. in the past five or six years. I mean, when I, when I first went down there in 2011, um, I spent a month down there to, to do some archival stuff and interview anybody I could. And I, you know, I just called fame and I was like, Hey, can I come write a book? And, you know, I didn't take dissertation because people didn't know what that most people don't know what that means. Yeah, And so, and so I, I, I basically got a personal tour, and they weren't really open to it. I mean, you could call and stop by, mm-hmm. and I was, I up interviewing David Hood in in um, one of the studio, in studio B, um, which is kind of which is cool. And actually, Rodney took took one of the pictures. Rodney took a picture of us. Yeah. And then at that time, Sound had been purchased by this other guy. The guy the um uh the uh it was the the guy who had where, um he owned it when that's when that's when um, the Black Keys recorded Brothers mm-hmm. recorded Brothers mm-hmm. yeah. there. And that was there was very problematic because there was a lot of misrepresentation of what the studio was and what the gear was, um, and then it shut down and then it, then it got purchased with Dr Dre and Jimmy Iovine, you know, and through Beats Foundation, you know, refurbished the studio. So when I when I when I first went to the show, when I first went to the sound after was refurbished, um, I think they had just told me that like Chris Stapleton had just recorded, like he was he was coming, or he had just come in or he's about to come in and record, and, and that was on. His most recent record, they recorded like maybe three tracks there, and it was mm-hmm. at night. Like so, they were still operating in during the day, but they were like they were blacked out. Like they were like shut at four o'clock, and then he would come in and record at night. Um, and they recorded maybe two tracks because Dave Cobb, who was in Staple's band and the producer and guitar player, he right. like on the board of sound. so yeah, so yeah, so you can rent it for any any again anybody can rent it. Um, obviously they 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 are looking for celebrity clients because they can probably pay more money. Sure. But um, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, we're famous. Still working. Famous, very much a working studio. And the and, and sound is still, it's a museum first and a studio
0: in right, yeah, second. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, well, uh, let's get more into the book. I said So um, So, music and mystique and Muscle Shoals, what is uh, the Muscle Shoals mystique? And what is the Muscle Shoals sound? Or is there uh, an actual uh, Muscle Shoals so sound?
1: So the, the mystique is this, like, theoretical thing I came up with. Uh, and it, and it, I'm quite impressed at how well it's held up and it's sort of like still seems to be true. So basically, you know, what happens is, you know, people like Jerry Wexler, who is, you know, from New York and an executive at, at Atlantic Records, they, he and others in the mid-60s sort of look to the South as like, you know, the South is the home of rock, country, and the blues. Like, that's, that's, there's that's no disputing that. And so, the music that was coming up from the South at the time. So people like James Brown, um, obviously stuff in stacks, uh, you know, I would even count James Brown in there too, you know, in Cincinnati um, and where he's recording the King. And so they, they, they hear these records as being more pure, more authentic. And so, um, and so people like Wexman and others, they go down to the, to, to the, to the show, the South in general, and the shows in particular, and they're like, Oh, they hear these session musicians who can make this stuff up as they go. It. It's just like Unbelievable. Right, but that's what musicians do—they create in no the spot. That's head arrangements, that's basically.
0: What kind of we're talking about, right? You what? mean head arrangements, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, head yeah. Ar- yeah, what, yeah. yeah what head arrangements? So, like, again, yeah, it's like here's the chord progressions, and someone comes up with a lick, and they just go. As opposed yeah. to where in, in places like L.A. or New York, and particularly New York, like people would write stuff out and it'd be charted out, and and it's, and it's, and, and, it, and, it, and it certainly can sound sterile if it's if the if, if the if the performances are not are not inspired. And so, Wexler goes down there and. And, you know, he hears these guys do this stuff. Like, it's amazing And, of course, they get a hit record. They get play the of the first recording they do with, you know, Wilson Pickett, you know, Mustang Sally and others. They, they, get their, they hear in the charts. So, like, so if those songs don't hit, I'm sure Wexler going to move on. Um, but he doesn't. So because the songs hit. And then he starts spinning this myth of, like, oh, these guys are amazing. They're, they're, like, they're not trained musicians. And, like, they can just make stuff up as they go. And it's amazing. It's so different than New York. And, and, and that's all true. And that's all true. But then as I dug a little deeper, I found out that Wexler was basically taking advantage of them. And because um, they worked, they worked long hours for little pay. And so Wexler got, you know, a good deal out of it. So, and so the myth, right. So this, this, like this idea of like musical authenticity, which is basically like this blackness in music um, for uh, for this and, and for this type of, for this type of songs. Um, and like Wexler's able to spin that. And, like, he, he talks about it in a Billboard a lot. And he did he did in Rolling Stone. And, and so, and then, and that just spreads. And so what happens is then this notion of the muscle soul sound, um, begins to spread. Um, you know, so, you know, uh, obviously the studio names themselves muscle soul sound, but the idea of like a distinguishable sound sort of happens in the late fifties. You know, you get the Bakersfield sound mm. and the natural sound. Um, and, uh, you know, and there's the Motown sound, the Stack sound. And, you know, when I looked into all this, there really is no one, very few of these places actually have any type of sonic signifiers, Motown has that, the Motown beat, the, the snare drum on all four beats. That's yeah. and use of what I would call auxiliary percussion, so tambourines. That's very, there's like, you can identify a Motown sound, Motown song pretty quickly. But the Shoals, there's, yeah, there's like a formula. Like, yeah, you need like 15 musicians to be in the band because that's about how many people record on these tunes. And, and Stax had a little bit different thing where you know, Stax didn't use that many backup singers. But the Shoals did. They used backup singers and horn section. But then what happens is the idea of, a, of the Muscle Soul Sound kind of falls apart because once the session musicians leave the the theme studios studios, they open their own studio called Muscle Soul Sound, ironically. Mm-hmm. Then the the idea of any one sound sort of falls apart because there are different musicians in different spaces, in different physical spaces. But the term Muscle Soul Sound begins to reverberate across across the industry as this thing, and you know people are trying to capture like, oh, I want that Muscle Soul Sound, even if even if I can't really identify it, you know. Sure, there are some things. A lot of the recordings have, especially the R especially the R and B era. So like basically, the, like roughly like 1962 to 69. You know, again, there's a little more low end on the recordings. They're a little more dirtier, so to speak. A little more muds, as, as some musicians might call it. Greasier. Um, because that because that's how you mixed R and B songs. But after that, the, you know the as the pop music scene shifts, and and both uh, both muscle Soul sound and Fame start recording more pop artists. The sound changes then, and so.
0: You know, so that's kind of what happened. So so it's
1: maybe there for a few years, but then it just just gets like anything and expands and changes.
0: Yeah, it's uh, funny too how um, uh, compared to to Motown, how uh, Southern Soul specifically, or or, you know the stuff, basically the Memphis stuff, stacks, and and then the uh, you know the stuff Atlantic was doing uh, and others in Muscle Shoals in the mid '60s um how it's seen as more authentically uh black <laughs> in a way that uh uh that motown uh, uh isn't sort of uh you know like when people talk about southern soul compared to northern soul you know Stax and motown and all that stuff it's a uh, um you know a lot of people talk about it's just a uh, um you know, like a blacker sound or, um, uh, or, or it's, or it's, um, but it's funny considering like, uh, again, you mentioned Motown was basically just a totally in-house operation where pretty much everybody on, uh, everybody involved with, uh, producing the, you know, the records of Motown for the, the songwriters, the songwriting teams, uh, the musicians themselves, the Funk Brothers, you know, outside of a few, um, um, you know, a couple white guys here and there, like, you know, Bob Babbitt and Dennis Coffey and uh, Joe Messina, those kind of guys. But uh, the writers are black for the most part. You know, the performers are black, you know, for the most part, outside of like, you know, like Chris Clark or somebody like that. Uh, and the musicians are black. The executives are black. <laughs> you know, like Motown is like, uh, uh, we're compared to, you know, Stacks or uh, what was going on in Muscle Shoals. I mean, Stacks, the, you know, Booker T and the MGs, you know, half that rhythm section is white. Uh, half the, you know, uh, the Memphis horns are white. Uh, it's a white executive, uh, you know, uh, you know, Steve Cropper, uh, is involved in writing a lot of the material, uh, that comes out of stacks. Um, you know, he produces the records, uh, many of the records and, you know, the same thing with, the uh, uh, you know, down in Muscle Shoals where, you know, Rick Hall's a white guy, uh, obviously, uh, or the first two rhythm sections and, you know, uh, the Swampers are, uh, all white dudes, you know, they, you know, I mean, they just, yeah. I mean, you know, they wouldn't, I mean, like, if you were at a, if you were at a, a, like a golden corral or like a cracker barrel or something in, uh, like, you know, Northern Alabama, you'd have no idea that like those guys are, you know, uh, you know, playing on like land of a thousand dances or anything like that. Uh, no,
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: So like, so, uh, but like, so yeah, so this, um, these two areas where the, the all you know the production and distribution of this music uh and the writing of this music is all much more interracial is seeing as more authentically, authentically black than what's coming out of motown when motown is almost like uh, totally uh you know totally a black-run enterprise
1: yeah i mean motown was was the largest black-owned company in the in the, in the US until yeah. like the, the the 80s or 90s yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, part of that, part of that mystique stems back long before recorded sound. Um, other, other historians have talked about it, you know, and I, you know, and I stand on their shoulders and, and sort of link what happened in the in you know what happened in the show and to fact to some extent as well as well to that to that idea. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it's like because the singer is black, everyone thinks everyone just there's this assumption. Oh, yeah, the rest of the band must be black, and you know, and as, 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 as that one chapter talks about. Like you know that's that's how it was perceived in both the black and white press so um you know and it's like oh you know and i mean you know jimmy johnson told me in an interview he's like when our picture first appeared on the back of aretha's gold which is her greatest hits record he's like he said something like he's like we assume we're gonna stop working because he's like there we are why do you know all our glory and I, <laughs> i'll never forget that quote and he's like nothing happened though because because no one because most people didn't really pay attention to that hmm. and the music was good so they didn't give they didn't care you know, what, who, you know, people, I'm, I'm sure some people cared, but, you know, but as the song, you know, as the song circulates in public, it, people tend to forget or don't even know who made the recording. I mean, that, and that still exists to this day. You know, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, what, what, what the, what the, the, the racial or ethnic makeup of the, of the person's team is like, they just see yeah. the singer. Like, oh, this is so. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and, and especially in, in that moment, in the, you know, in the late sixties, when Aretha releases Respect and that song really becomes, you know, becomes, you know, anthemic for, 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 for for African-Americans in this country as, as it still is to this day. Yeah. So yeah, despite the, despite the mixed racial, the racial origins of, of the songs and the power structures behind the songs. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So, um, let's get a little bit into the, the origin of, um, of Muscle Shoals as a uh, as a recording industry hotspot. How did um, how did the music scene uh, the recording industry um, get get in get its start in the shoals?
1: Um, yeah, it's you know, like like many other places, it's completely haphazard. So the 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 Father of the scene is this guy, this is guy James Jorner, whose family owned a bus company. And he was an aspiring songwriter, and he wrote a song um, called Fallen Star in, like, 1955, 56. And he hires a uh, high school singer, high school student to, um, to record it. And so – and there's no, rec- there's no recording studios, apparently, in all of Alabama. So he goes to – like many, like many things happen, he goes to the, to the radio station – because they've got recording gear, they record a song in between while the DJ the DJ plays one song in the air. Runs into the room, hits the tape, you know, engineers the recording. They do it live, and it becomes like a regional hit. And you know, Junior eventually you know, later on reflects in like in like an article in in Cashbox in the '70s, like he's like, I didn't expect this to become a scene. I just figured there's a way people stop off here on the way to on their way to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And so, but but the, the this little tiny scene attracts Rick Hall, um, and Billy Sherrill, who both go on to be ginormous careers. In, and so, yeah. you know, they, Hall and Cheryl and some other people form Fame uh, for, Lawrence, Alabama, for Lawrence Alabama Music Enterprises. And, they, and they're they looking at publishing because publishing is where the money is. That's that's how you make money in the industry if you own the song or write and own the song. And so Hall difficult to work with. They basically send him out his way. He buys the name of Fame and he starts his own studio. And he, you know, looking for anything to do, you know, he's, he's, he's working in bar bands, um, the, um, a group called the Fairlanes. And then, you know, and then um, Arthur Alexander sort of stumbles into the this scene. This, these guys have this little half, this half ass studio that above a drugstore because there's and Arthur Alexander comes in and he's, he's already been in the group and he's already had written a couple of songs and they like his music. And so there's even right, Arthur Alexander black. Everyone, everyone in the scene is white. So there's definitely some racial things going on, like some admiration props, you know. I, who knows? And and so they go in and record. Um, you better move on. And and so and they work on it for like what sounds like basically six months to record one song, and Hall shops it around and it gets placed and it gets it, it makes it about to 25 on the R&B charts in Billboard and that's a huge success. And then Hall Hall owns some of the song and he gets paid a pretty decent amount of money, and he builds a studio and then that's where it starts um so journey was definitely the guy that started the whole thing hall gets all the credit because he's he's the more flamboyant for lack of a better term you know person mm-hmm. um uh and then, and then and then and then and then you know if if the because arthur alexander was black and the songs are r&b R and B artists begin to go to the shows. Had it been a country song, it would have been a country scene. I, 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 I'm almost, I would almost guarantee, I guarantee that that's how it would have went. Mm-hmm. But so other R and B artists and other R and B labels start to, you know, who don't own studios, labels in own studios, start going to shows and start taking advantage of, uh, sorry, not not the bad way, but they start using, utilize the talents of, of the in house session musicians. And and, and because because the proximity to Nashville, um, you know, that's that's part of it. You know. You know, you know, and one of the things that I, that I uncovered while doing research was that there was already this really close connection between some of the musicians in the shoals pre, that predate James Jorner and and Nashville. So there was already like there was already like a network of people yeah. who had, had worked in the shoals. Um, primarily, these, these country bluegrass musicians who moved to Nashville, and so they had they had these connections, and that certainly helped strengthen the ties that Jorner had, and also eventually.
0: Yeah, um, uh, that all, Nashville. That Nashville is the model, right? Like that's when when they're envisioning course, what yeah. they want to do. Like they yeah. they want to they want to do it the way Nashville does it. Like that's you know how does Nashville do it? That's how we're going to do it, sort of thing.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, cause, I mean it, it is literally, it, at, at that point, it's, it's, it's only two and a half hours away. So, like, yeah. it's not, I mean, New York, is, New York is a 15-hour drive, and New York is a monstrous scene. Nashville, and Nashville in the 50s was a very small operation, maybe, maybe a, couple, a couple of few studios. Yeah, RCA that, Studio and, B
0: and a couple, couple yeah, others, yeah, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and, and Buddy Killen, who grew up in the Shoals, Works for Hank. He he becomes Hank Williams' bass player. Base player, and he works for Tree Publishing. This is one of the large, one of thing, one of the largest publishing companies in the world. Yeah. And so they've got like, oh, it's, it's kind of the good old boy network. Oh, like, oh buddy, I know, buddy. This, this, I mean, I, and so Hall publishes some songs with, through, through Tree Publishing. Junior publishes some songs through Tree Publishing. So, I mean, it is, it is, you know, you know, you know, one of the things I point out in the book, like, you know, there was there, was, I have this chart like that shows all the things that were happening related to shows musicians before Arthur Alexander shows up, and there was a ton of things mm-hmm. happening. A lot of songs being written, published, you know, I mean, there were some recordings, I mean, some, some people who are, you know, has been or never was, but there was there was some stuff happening, and Hall, Hall got really lucky, and he, I mean, he, and he was incredibly talented. I'm oh, yeah. to be very clear about that. Um, but, you know, but there's, but there's talent is not necessarily what, what makes you in the industry. It's luck. It's oh, a sure, yeah. Thing. I
0: mean, it's, uh, it's you mentioned the, the sort of um, happy accident of Arthur Alexander, and if not for for him, how you know R and B probably doesn't get you know much of a foothold there, um, you know. But it's also another same thing, like uh, you know uh, maybe it um, you know uh, Atlantic basically (laughs) Atlantic Records screws stacks out of its uh, back catalog in like 1967 or 68. So, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden Atlantic records, um, personnel or persona non grata at stacks. Um, so Jerry Wexler has to find a, you know, someplace else to record all these, uh, you know, musicians and, uh, artists and stuff and, uh, sort of, you know, pushes them all, uh, or a lot of them to, um, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to muscle shoals, you know so maybe if you know yeah, if that if, 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 if on
1: the road is, you know, yeah.
0: yeah yeah, i mean if if you know if, if that doesn't happen that 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 split between or that rift between stacks and Atlantic, maybe Aretha Franklin never goes to you know uh maybe she goes to Memphis instead of going to Muscle Shoals, and uh right. you know that sort of thing, um so yeah, it's just uh funny how like again this sort of these things are just sort of it's uh uncontrollable in a way you know just uh, uh fate you know
1: uh, yeah yeah, yeah you know uh, yeah I mean, it certainly is part of it you know but you know you know i mean you know wexler is basically the you know like he's like the the shadow he's not sorry he's not a shadow he's very central to the book mm-hmm. but like yeah i mean like you know the the i i don't think you know i i think i i i, I give like one or two sentences like oh he has a dispute with jim stewart who owns half your know, own stacks yeah and then, but like, that's a huge thing, right? Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's always about money. And, and, and one of the reasons that, that, that Wexler cuts the Muscle Shoals sound loose is because it was about money because they, they, I you know, when the, there was some pushback from the, from the, when the shows, when Muscle Shoals, the musicians who owned Muscle Soul Sound, they there was, they gave some pushback, Atlantic pull, Atlantic says, oh, you know what? You lost all the money right now. And like, they, they, they called in their note and then boom, and like and Atlantic picks up and they moved to Miami. So yeah. because, because, because because Wexler wants to, wants to retire to Miami. And he wants all the musicians to go to Miami They're like, we, we live here. And so he's like, all right. Then he, he's like, so it's all, it's like, I love you, but it's business. And yeah. then bam. And so, you know, so it's so some interesting things happen and interesting happen. And those stories aren't necessarily widely known. Um, you know, and, and yeah, some of it, some of it is fate, but a lot of it is, you know, it's like it is the music industry is a business. Sure. Absolutely.
0: Uh, I guess, uh, again, starting, um, the start of this whole thing, but, uh, so in the late 50s, early 60s, mid-60s, what, um, what were uh, race relations like in uh, the Shoals area? I mean, for people um, sort of not familiar uh, with the area, it's in northwest Alabama, uh, the area called the Shoals around there. Uh, it's uh, on the Tennessee River, uh, four different towns, Tuscumbia, Sheffield. Uh, muscle shoals itself and Florence, which is the uh, where the University of North Alabama is um, located. And it's uh I'm pretty sure it's a dry area outside of Florence. Well I know I've had Yeah, it's a dry county, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've had dry, where, where, I've, Florida, I've drank in yeah, Florida, Florence. Florida so is in Cl-
1: yeah, yeah, so yeah, I mean yeah, the city the city is the city is not is not dry, but the the county
0: is. Right. Um, And it's like, and and it's it's not on a uh, the area is not on a an interstate. Um, You know, it's it's very out of the way. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's
1: very much out of
0: the way. Very out of the way and tucked into this, you know, this northwest Alabama uh, uh, corner there. Yeah, I mean, when when I give talks, I often you know I often mention.
1: the Wilson Dam, because people have heard of that in TVA and also Helen Keller is like, mm-hmm. oh, and because like, and they don't they don't nothing know about muscles are, but they've heard of Helen Keller, and maybe the Wilson Dam. So the reason, you know, so, you know, uh, it's Alabama in the 50s and 60s. So there's that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I asked that question a lot to people when I was last down there doing research about 2019. And. It it was bad. It was not Birmingham. It was not Selma. But everything was segregated. Mm. Uh, there Be very clear about that. You know, there's a, a quote from, uh, I'm forgetting his name in the book. He's like, I'm not going to downplay the fact that everything was segregated and things were bad for, for, many, for, many black, for many black families. The one significant difference is that because the region didn't really rely on King Cotton, there were not as many... There were not as many slaves in that area mm-hmm. you know, preceding and up to the Civil War, and um, so that that's that was that was that was one reason why it's maybe not wasn't as bad because it didn't rely on chattel slavery.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the you know uh, Tori Bailey told me you know I can quote in the book she's like things weren't so bad here because there were, there were a lot of jobs. So you know there was there were jobs for the TVA, there were jobs at Browns Ferry, um, a n- nuclear plant. And so she, she said, something like, you know, people weren't so pissed off because black people weren't taking white people's jobs. So, yeah. and, you know, and, and you know, and as I, as I did some more research, you know, there was a very large um, uh, Jewish population in the shoals. And so Billy Warren, who was at the time when I spoke to him, he was a city, the city historian for Florence, like, he's like, I don't know. That, I think that explains a little bit of why the area was more tolerant. And you know I'm very careful in the book. It was not, it was not progressive. No yeah. one used that term. It, it was more tolerant. Um, you know, it, that's a hard question to ask people. You know, like, hey, hey, random person of color, <laughs> what was it like for you and your family? You know, I I, I, that's, I, I can't ask a question because because it's it's it, 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 you know as an outsider it's a very very difficult thing to ask that. So but, it, but from from all the research I've done, it seems like it wasn't that bad compared to other places in Alabama.
0: Doesn't mean it's Again, great. Segregated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean yeah, it doesn't
1: Yeah. yeah it, right. Which is great. But it, it was it was you still I mean, still a second second or third class citizen if you were a person of color sure. down there. So, you know, and you know, and you know, Charles Hughes' book, you know, Country Soul really digs into some of that. Oh yeah, you
0: know, yeah, I read that. And and,
1: yes. and, 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 and 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 talks about that in his chapter multiple souls, like it was not equal. Even in the studio, it was not equal. There was definitely an us and them thing. Um, it was better, you know. Uh, and, 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 and you know, and I, I, I hopefully I'm, I'm eloquent enough. In the, in the, when I speak about the race relations in the shows, saying, I don't know. Uh, there's no way to quantify this. I can just, I can offer some evidence and say this is why maybe it was more tolerant. But I, I, it's impossible to really know without interviewing every person who was alive at the time, at which of course is not possible. So. You know, so I just try to
0: offer up some, some, some of the things. But yeah, you know, but
1: there's also plenty of evidence that it was, things were really shitty in some places too.
0: Yeah, um, I actually I just watched the. Uh, have you seen the the new um, the new Aretha Franklin uh, the movie, the one with uh, Jennifer Hudson? Uh, I have not. Don't, no? don't, uh, don't tell I, anybody. not But I have not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's it's on. What channel was it on HBO Max? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, or, I, I, it's been I, out for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. So I finally watched it, and uh, over the weekend, and uh, you know, the, of course, they, uh, well, they they get a few things wrong about the, uh, you know, her, uh, the stuff with muscle shoals, but they, you know, obviously it's a prominent part of the film, of her going down there and you know doing basically the one day session, uh, before right. before the shit hits the fan uh with the right. uh um uh, the, so uh Jackson, yeah. the, horn, the, horn the horn player who uh well it's all sort of shrouded in mystery and it's hard to um in the movie they have it where basically he gets a little bit too familiar with aretha puts his i mean puts like his arm around her and uh this yeah, pisses this I pisses mean, off ted no white
2: to...
0: yeah this pisses off ted in yeah, the film guess... it says like this pisses off ted white and he flies off the handle, and uh, later on they leave. And then in the movie, where I've heard it, where I've heard it in the past, is uh, not from the movies. That Jerry Wexler and Rick Hall go to like the hotel, and then there's a verbal argument between. Uh, yeah, they come to blows actually. Basically, the, yeah, 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 something like that. In the movie, it's just Rick Hall himself, and he goes to, he basically goes to apologize uh to Aretha he says he's fired the horn player uh blah 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 not gonna be a problem and then Ted White uh Aretha's husband at the time uh just like really lays into him with like all like the peckerwood and like honky like cracker stuff and uh eventually goads uh Rick Hall into calling him the n-word and then it starts into this big you know uh <laughs> you know, fist bite. In the room, yeah. but like Jerry Wexler's not present. It's just like those two and Aretha, and uh, uh, but uh, yeah,
1: I mean, you know, even in, in Aretha's biography, she says she talks about like that that her husband White storms off, yeah, and she doesn't know what happened to him, and and she goes to the airport the next morning without him, and he's already there, and she's like he was gonna leave me there, like yeah. he was pissed, he was like because I think things were already on the I mean, I it seems like things were on the rocks between those two, but yeah, he but White had already was already at the airport waiting. Yeah, I, I, you know, there was a drinking involved, um, you know, Wexler more or less fired Hall. Yeah. Like, and this, these are accounts that people told me, you know, on and off the record. And, you know, and, and then, you know, as Wexler said, in it, his autobiography, I think I mentioned this in the book, like, Wexler's like, we knew she was happy with the musicians. Yeah. It was, but so it was, it was just that scene was not, was not happening. And, you know, and then that's why, that, and then Wexler basically brings, you know, secretly brings the musicians to New York you know, on, 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 under the roof of another one other, another project, and then like has them record the other record the first session, and Paul was pissed. Yeah, he's like, you're trying to steal my musicians.
0: So, so which they, he does. I mean, was. I mean, he he, I mean, he bankrolls yeah. the studio for him, or Muscle Shoals Sound, and he yeah, does so, kind of yeah, steal them. It,
1: it, 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 <laughs> it takes a couple years. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, but like, yeah, you know, but but again, you know, it's, it is again, it's, it's all about money. Like they're they're producing hit records, which which is making money for clearly for Atlantic Records. You know, I'm not you know not many of the songs that are recently records are not written by Theme songwriters are written by others, so I mean, so you know, Hall is making money on on the studio rental mm-hmm. for sure, and he's probably getting some. I'm, I'm gonna guess he's probably he's probably got some points on the records um, oh, for sure. being engineer, so he's making money. Um, But yeah, but again, even if they're not happy with each other, there's definitely that it's working. It's like, hey, we're making money. We'll we'll put aside our differences because we can make we can make we're we're actually doing pretty well here.
0: Actually, uh, why don't we uh, get into that uh, if you can um, just sort of explain to people like how, um, especially when you're like a a a little operation like this and in the in the. 60s there's a ton of you know independent record labels well i mean motown's an independent record label so is atlantic sure um all those things but um for a studio uh for a little independent label uh even for you know even for an atlantic record something like that what uh how big of a deal is it and how much money is there to be made off uh a hit record you know a hit record that goes you know uh that that not only gets to, say, like, you know, the top 10 or top 20 in the, on the R&B charts or the country charts, but, um, you know, that goes into the, you know, goes into the top 20, goes into the top 10 on the, uh, you know, the main national, you know, Billboard Hot 100 charts. Sure, the Hot 100. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it comes down to copyright. And so on the sound recording, there are essentially two copyrights. There are two copyrights. There's a copyright for the recording itself, which is called the recording, and then there's Um, a copyright for the musical work, which is basically the composition, the song. And so the label will typically own all or a significant portion of the recording. And so in exchange for that, the the person who records the song, the, the artist, will get a royalty. And if you are also, then if you are the label and you also have you you it's a, a song the song was written by someone who works for your company, and your publishing company, which is separate, which is a separate company than the record label. Um, then the the publishing company and the writer also make money. And so if you have a staff songwriter, as Rick Hall did, as as, as I'm, not, I'm not sure Atlantic had staff songwriters. Um, but they, they but they de- but they definitely owned a piece of the publishing, and I can talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. So they're making money. The label can make money on both the sale of the record and and the song itself. And so if a, if a song goes to number one, you can more or less it's like almost a license to print money.
2: Yeah.
1: So the the case in point is when later you know in the in the nineties when Gary Baker, um, co-writes I swear for John Michael Montgomery a song that goes number one for John Michael Montgomery, John Michael Montgomery. The country's number one, and also there's a, a boy band that recorded, and so it's on the charts for I don't know a long ass time. It sells 20 million copies, and Fame owned the publishing to that, and so that song probably bankrolled Fame probably for another 30 years alone. So wow. that's how. So that's why it's important. I mentioned earlier when if you are the songwriter and you own you own as much publishing as possible, um, or own as much portion of the publishing as possible, um, that uh, you retain those rights, and then you can make money coming and going. Uh, and so, late, late, so, so, Hall, that's, so, Hall basically gets into the recording industry where he's like, I, I became a recording engineer because I need to make demos for my songs. I was a songwriter and I need to get the demos done so I can pitch the songs to, 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 to publishers in, in Nashville. And so, that's how I got into recording mm-hmm. because he knew that being a, being a publisher was where the money was at. And that's, pretty much still what what fame is known for is, is although all the hit recordings they've had, they own it. They they've owned several they've, they've bought well they've sold several portions of their catalogs. And so so going back in the sixties, Atlantic's making a lot of money. You know, Aretha's, you know, she's the number one artist for R and B for about seven or eight years. Mm. You know, she tops all these polls, she wins all these Grammy Awards, and that's all just record sales. That's all record sales. And so they're making money on that as well. And 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 I know that that when um, Atlantic was bankrolling Muscle Soul Sound, they, um, Muscle, Muscle Soul Sound had to give a portion of the publishing to Atlantic Records. So not only did Muscle Soul Sound have to pay back Atlantic Records for the loan that they, that Atlantic gave the studio to open the studio, they were paying them back by giving them publishing credits, um, on the songs that, well, that's, that songwriters for the studio wrote and that got into albums. And so Atlantic, as David had told me, Atlantic was making the money and coming and going.
0: Yeah. Cool. all right uh well it's a sleazy business boys and girls <laughs> yeah for sure well uh sleazy business. yeah so um for the people out there who have seen the documentary muscle shoals you know it gets uh, um it spends a lot of time on uh you know the formation of the uh industry there and in the with, with the r&b stuff in the 60s with you know wilson pickett and aretha and, and etta james and you know uh, clarence carter and you know Et cetera, et cetera, and then you know it, it goes a little bit into the uh, into the '70s with the, the sort of the success that uh, um, you know Rick Hall's going to have with uh, the stuff in CBS, including the Osmonds. <laughs> the Osmonds, the Muscle that Shoals, might be the mo- That might be the most quintessential Muscle Shoals song
1: there is. One Bad Apple. One Bad Apple, song. yeah,
0: yeah, it is a great song. Yeah, and uh, same guy, um, uh, which is in George Jackson, the same guy who wrote uh, "Old Time Rock and Roll." Uh, exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway so and then it gets into you know um muscle Shoals sound studio the swampers on their own uh you know with the you know, the session with the stones with you know famously from you know uh you know brown sugar wild right. yeah. and wild horses and you got to move and uh you know paul simon and uh, jimmy cliff and traffic and the staple singers and etc uh but it it virtually or completely ignores um how muscle shoals how uh that area is going to change the sound of country music in the mid to late seventies and uh in the uh, early mid eighties. Can you talk uh, talk about the it's uh muscle shoals' impact on on country music in that period?
1: Yeah, so I I as you know, as you as your introduction there points out, like that's nobody wants to talk about that story because yeah. it's not cool, I guess. So beginning, you know, I, there are changes in the early 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 seventies, you know, country music is moving away from being primarily identified with you know pedal steel and banjos and fiddles. I mean, it's been done enough too. And and so they're, they're looking to move more more to the mainstream. And so there's you know these what we what we call crossover artists. And so you know, Music Mill Studios gets this idea of like, hey, we're in muscle shoals. We can we can. What if we got some country musicians to come here, and we use these musicians. The, these studio musicians who were really gifted at making pop records, because that's because R and d was pop, and then Paul Simon, the, the they were all pop records. Hmm. And so, what if we infuse these country these country artists with some pop? And and so you know Hank Williams goes there, and as do many others. And as the studio scene sort of as the studio scene in the show sort of peters out because it's, you know they're they're more it's more competitive, um, more bands are using their own musicians as opposed to hiring studio musicians, you know, especially in the pop world, mm-hmm. opened up a space for for the shoal scene to move into country. And they do that through, you know, recording, you know, Shenandoah, of course, comes out of, comes out of fame, you know, Alabama, Oak Ridge Boys, recorded fame. Um, but they do that, but the shoal really influences the sound of country music, primarily through songwriting. And so you get, you know, numerous songwriters who were signed to publishing deals with fame, particularly, um, or to one of the fame publishing companies, they start cranking out these number one songs for Nashville, which is you know literally right down the road, and that sustains the shoals industry for a long time because you know one you know as Rodney Hall said to me in, in an email it's like you know the studio rental is fine it's maybe five hundred bucks a thousand dollars a day you get one hit song and that can put back in last years yeah. because the money just because it just because it can generate so much revenue and so and then what happens eventually in the late eighties is when Barry Beckett, who was the keyboard player for the Swampers decides he's tired of playing keyboard and he wants to produce more. Cause at that point he'd been working as a, as a sort of a co-producer an, an unofficial co-producer with Wexler on Dylan records and Dire Straits records and whatever he moves to Nashville. And then he becomes one of the number one producer in the mid nineties of in country music. And because he brings again, bringing that R and B pop aesthetic to Nashville and, and completely, you know, changes or help he's among other he and others help change the sound of country to move to more pop sound again you know if you're a country traditionalist you might hate that stuff but you know the labels don't care because the labels they, they want hits and as you know as many people in industry people say you only as as your last hit and so if that if, the, if your last hit was a pop tune and that's what the sound is then that's what they want for the next one too and so and so and and much of that history that i talk about in, the, in that chapter called i swear mm. was has although it's literally littered across the pages of Billboard and Catchbox in the in the late seventies and eighties, no one just no one's talking about that because a lot of the artists, they're not like these iconic uh, artists. Although I mean there's some big names of Ronnie Milsap, you know, there's some big people involved in that work that worked with people in the shoals. Um, but they're all these artists that, that like they they lean a little more pop than country. And so the country people, country aficionados and country country music historians kind of they kind of poo poo towards those those and it's mostly guys. Yeah, Muscle Shoals is really influential in that scene. Yeah, and 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 in
2: 1994,
1: the the two the two biggest songs in country music were produced through through guys in the Shoals. So you have, yeah, you have I swear by John Michael Montgomery and Wink, um, which was produced by by Barry Beckett. The two
0: biggest songs in 1994 had very close Muscle Shoals connections. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, take us down to the present day. What's the uh, um, what is uh Muscle Shoals look like uh? What's the scene down there now in the present? What is, uh, um, uh, what does it look like now? How did, uh, um, what, um, has there been a transition away from, uh, from country, uh, from that sort of, uh, more cosmopolitan country, I guess, uh, pop country, uh, no, the, I, the I, 80s? You no, know, I, I, there's,
1: there's still like a very big writer scene in the shoals, mm. and like, and that was cultivated, you know, in the, you know, in the, in this in the seventies, you know, Ava Aldridge um uh you know started having these songwriting circles and they still exist. There's now uh there's now the Muscle Shoals songwriting I forget what what is called the songwriting festival. Mm-hmm. And so where well, they showcase a lot of writers um in the shoals. So it's it's really moved more into a into a songwriting scene, although fame still you know, fame is still open as we mentioned and mm-hmm. as is sound. Um and uh you know I don't know as as many it's it's kind of hard to track what records are recorded there unless they unless the artists themselves say, Hey, I recorded and as you mentioned, a lot of many people are doing that. But you know, I'm friends on social media with several several of, of the session musicians, and so they'll occasionally post like, Oh yeah, we did the session for this person. And so there's there's a lot of like up and coming acts that will still go that go to fame. Mm-hmm. You know, and as I mentioned, you know, what's basically sustains fame is, is their publishing catalog. You know, the the the, the recording metals are are, you know, again Expensive, but, but it's not outrageous. And there's, even, there's actually even, a, there was, I remember reading, there's now an in, initiative that um, some, through some grant, uh, I'm not sure if it's a Shoals-based grant of which one of the counties, like they will actually, if you want to come to the Shoals to record, they actually underwrite the recording because they want people to come back and start recording there. But, you know, but since, but since the movie came out in 2014, there's been a, a lot more awareness of the scene. And so it, it has really bolstered the tourism uh, in the in the in the region, and so Fame offers tours. I think now they're now when I went there, my tours it was free. Now you got to pay. You have to pay like fifteen bucks to go take a tour of of Sound, um, and and some other studios are are kind of doing the same thing. Um, so you know it's still there. Um, it's nowhere near as vibrant as it was, and and they're they're much more embracing their historical past in a way that they never have previously. Mm-hmm. And I, again, much of that is because of because of the the the, the attention that the film. Uh, the, the film shined, shined a, a very bright light on, on the scene, but and because people in the area just had no idea that this, thing, this stuff even existed, so now they're as Judy had told me, like there are people, there are locals who are embracing this a little more than they probably should, because <laughs> they were like, yeah. like they want to own it, you know. It was like, I mean, when in my, my first couple trips there, people had no idea what I was. There. They were like, "What? There's a recording scene here?" And now, yeah, you know, it was very was siloed like, off from oh, yeah, like the rest it. of the,
0: uh, you know, community. I mean, for <laughs> for uh, obviously for good reasons. I mean, especially if you have a lot of you know, famous, uh, musicians, um, you know, coming to town, you know, want the privacy and whatnot. And also just because, you know, uh, musicians, <laughs> uh, tend to have, uh, musicians from out of town tend to have a different, uh, 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 ban- they live different, bandwidth, yeah, <laughs> mean, different world than, uh, the people who, you know, are uh, born and raised in a very,
1: yeah, in, a ver- in a very, in a very, Quasi rules conservative te- yeah. place in the 60s and 70s. I mean,
0: David had said that he's like
1: he's like we didn't advertise. He's like Pete is like something like I think it's in the book. He's like we had people had very different lifestyles. Like we were not advertising. Who so you know, and each each student had basically had they bought a house. And so when you came to the show, you you actually they put you up in a house, and that was part of the packaging. And you know like they told me Bob Dylan the first time he came to Sound like he drove himself across the country in a in a in a, in a BW microbus. And he lived at there. He lived at there at the house they owned. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like and
0: uh, and, and, and yeah, I think I remember uh, someone telling me that uh, like when Traffic was was there recording, um, you know, like uh, like David Hood's mom, you just used to like stop by the studio and just like drop off like biscuits and stuff because <laughs> like Steve Winwood yeah, would love to be, mean, you know? You know, they, they, yeah, yeah, you
1: know they. You know there there were stories I heard too. Like I, I can't remember musicians like. Like you know, Liza Minnelli, Liza Minnelli recorded there an album that's never been released. But like they're like, oh, she was in, went to the grocery store because like no one like no one expect to see Liza Minnelli in a grocery store in Alabama. It's like yeah. like oh, was that her? Like I don't know. Like what is she, like like what is she doing? I was like, well, because she's recording. But again, people had no idea. I mean, you drive by fame. Now, like you know, you look at the pictures of fame, like it, you know, it's right now it's, it's next to a CVS,
2: yeah, you know, and yeah. it doesn't,
1: you know, and 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 sound is kind of in the kind of on a back road, you know, like, like it's you know, it's like you don't expect it, and you know, back then it's like it was very they're very un, unauspicious buildings, as most studios are, like you have no idea, like that, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's recording
0: studio. when I that's what when I was thinking when I went up there, uh, on my visit back in 2019, I was, uh, you know, it was when I was at in the parking lot at fame, I was just sort of looking around, just being like. This place probably looked completely different, you know, 50 years ago. <laughs> there's probably nothing. Yeah, no, no, I'm, no, I'm no, just no, looking no. around like nothing like around here. I don't even know if like that that uh, you know that Holiday Inn that's uh, sort of famously featured in uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the Gimme Shelter yeah, documentary exactly, where exactly. the Stones played. I don't even know if yeah. that's even there anymore.
1: No, yeah, that's that's gone. Like, like there, there's a plaque. It's, I mean, so even even that, like you know, so when I was first there in 2011, there was like there was like a historical plaque. At the at the unfortunately the wrong site of where fame, what what the what the drugstore was,
2: mm-hmm. and then
1: um and then now there are plaques everywhere. So there's there's a plaque where the where the Holiday Inn was. There's a plaque where Queen Ivy Studio is mm. was um and, and so there's other plaques because because they they fully embraced and I think I can part of that is definitely definitely positive fallout from from the from the documentary.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say I don't like off the top of my head I don't know I don't know uh how many other documentaries have had such a um an economic impact on on a uh, at least in like the last uh you know 10 20 years something like that on an area like that one has had on you know on the shoals
1: yeah no, that that you know that that's a very good point because you know like a documentary about a studio like, you know Grohl's documentary about sound city is like it's LA yeah. LA's got other things people go to and for But yeah, I mean, so here's, you know, and even Memphis, even a, a, a documentary about Sun Studio, which are already legendary, but like Memphis has other things that are going to attract you. Like, yeah, this is, this is a region that's really small and it's basically known for bass fishing. I mean, that's, that's what the river probably, that's, that's what, I mean, they had these massive bass mm-hmm. fishing tournaments because the river is, you know, is, is, is awesome. And Helen Keller, but I, I don't know, I don't know how much business Helen Keller brings in. Um, and yeah. And so, yeah, it, it had, it had a humongous economic impact. On that you know and so, and so much so that they you know they that the florence lauderdale tour, tourism and you know they hired they hired a consultant to come in like how can we capitalize on this stuff and so they did the sound they did what's called the there's a it was a sound city which is different from the from the, doc, the documentary like right. this they could they basically produce this report I, I, that's one of the that's like the coda of my book they talk about that so mm-hmm. you know and you know and I, I i know that the 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 people down in the shelves were very psyched about my book because like, because they had, there was no, there was basically no story to, there was no, there was no, there's no book that that tells the story, and not going tells it in its entirety, but there's no, you know, there's nothing that, there's nothing like, oh yeah, here's you want to learn more, here's a, here's a, here's a pamphlet, here's the book, so yeah, you no, know, Carolyn Crawford was very excited about that. Ah, great.
0: Cool. The, the,
1: the heritage area was very excited about the book. So.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, all right, well, yeah. I've already kept you over an hour. Uh, a couple of other things I want well, to talk it, about, it, it, but it, I very much enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, so um, uh, I guess I'll just uh, I'll end it by uh, asking you the uh, question I ask everybody that uh, comes on the podcast, and uh, that is, uh, you know, what would you like the audience to uh, to get out of this book, or what's the uh, well, you know what's the one thing you'd want them to take away from from having read it? Ah, that's, no, I
1: don't think no one's ever asked that question. Um, you know, it's a, it's a story of determination and kind of like, you know, I, I'll, I'll kick it back to one of my, one of my people I interviewed, like, you know, Reed Watson, at, at, in the, in, uh, who works for a, a label in the Shoals called Single Lock. He's like, the story about this region is like, screw it. No one said we couldn't do this, so we're going to do it. Mm. And, or no one's, you know, because, because they just, they said they had no idea that they shouldn't be able to do this kind of thing. And they did it anyway. And You know, um, so you know this group of guys, and it's unfortunately almost all guys. um, You know, a a lot of different people. They they're just like, sure, we could do that, and they build this. They help build this massive empire that has significantly influenced not only U.S. culture but culture across you know musical culture across the globe. Yeah. Um. And and they they built this legacy that's going to hopefully live for a very long time. So, um, it is it is very much just uh, you know an American story but about determination and and just like yeah we could do that sure
0: all right cool okay uh well again uh the book is music and mystique in muscle shoals um highly highly recommend this to everybody out there um even if you're not a uh, gigantic um soul music nut like i am uh, but it's a uh, uh, a fascinating story about a region that um <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably uh, more so than any other region in America has uh, punched above its weight class uh, musically.
2: Yeah, uh, that's a good way to put it? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a really cool little story. Um, you know, just uh, you know, revealing all these people and places and uh, events there that uh, you know put uh, put this region on the map and uh has meant uh you know uh, so much to uh american musical history so highly highly recommend it uh out there again music and mystique in muscle shoals the author uh dr christopher Rialli, uh dr Rialli. thank you uh very very much again for oh, coming you so on the, for the podcast I okay, very much appreciate uh, it. no problem yeah all right and again if you like this podcast please uh leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you, uh, you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me a tbenson at a t heartland.org. That's T B E N S O N at heartland.org. Uh, and for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And, uh, uh we do also have our, uh, Twitter account for the, uh, for this podcast. Um, what the hell is our handle? Yeah, uh, at illbooks, at ILL books. You can uh, check us out there. Uh, you know, uh, give us a follow. Send us a DM if you have any questions or comments or whatnot. Uh, yeah, look out for us there. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.